what happens is we have this gap as experts in that it all seems so obvious. The Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, um, coined one of my favorite terms in their book called Made to Stick. They coined a term called the curse of knowledge, which is that we forget what it's like to not know. Hmm. And I think that that is, I mean, if there is one thing that, that I'm working with all the time, it's the curse of knowledge, which is that we get so involved as the experts in developing our, you know, our material, our findings, doing the research, that we put the data out there and it seems obvious. And so being aware of the curse of knowledge, I think, helps to combat it. Ask yourself, am I, I'm not just listing or giving this finding, but am I interpreting it for my audience? Hi, everyone. This is David Paul. And on this episode, I'm talking with presentation expert and TED speaker, Melissa Marshall. Melissa has committed her career to helping scientists, engineers, and researchers present their findings in ways that are meaningful, engaging, and inspire people to take action. Melissa is a faculty member with the Department of Communication Arts and Sciences at Penn State University, and her TED Global Talk, titled Talk Nerdy to Me, has been watched more than two million times. In addition, Melissa has lectured at Harvard Medical School, the New York Academy of Sciences, and the CDC. In this conversation, we discuss how to distill down your message by continually asking the question, so what? How to best use slides and visual aids when presenting data, Melissa's universal truths for crafting and delivering effective presentations, and a lot more. So check it out. Hey, Melissa, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, David. I'm looking forward to the conversation. It's my pleasure. Me too. So for people who don't know you, tell us a little bit about your story. Sure. Yeah. So uh, I'm, a, I'm a communications uh, professional who uh, wandered into the world, if you will, of, uh, of science and, and engineering and the, the challenges that scientists and engineers experience with communication. And I wandered in and never wandered back out. Uh, because I realized immediately that this was an, was an area that, as a communications professional, I was incredibly passionate about and also saw so much, uh, so much opportunity to make a difference in helping the people, like scientists and engineers, that are doing important work, helping them to translate that work uh, to those that might be um, outside of their, of their field. And, you know, so that was, that's a, you know, how a little bit about uh, where I, you know, how I got into this uh, and, and sort of what my role is. It was kind of an interesting journey. Uh, so I spent 10 years of my career as a faculty member in communication at Penn State University. And while I was there, I was responsible for teaching public speaking and presentation skills classes. And what happened uh, fairly early on in my career is that the Colleges of Engineering and the Colleges of Science came over uh, to communications and said, hey, we could really use some help with some really targeted classes for our science and engineering students to make sure that they're doing a better job because some of the feedback they were getting uh, mm -hmm. from employers was that uh, the students were doing a great job uh, on the technical side, but needed to do a little bit of a, of a stronger job explaining uh, some of their some of their research and their design ideas. So I was the person that uh, kind of bubbled up to the task there and became uh, the one who developed some of those courses. And so that's when I say I wandered in. Um, that's how that happened. I was sort of happily teaching uh, public speaking courses at the university level and then got this extra task to develop a specialized course 
uh, for science and engineering students. And so that was really, I would say for me, my proving ground in terms of really developing and researching um, a lot of the, the techniques and strategies that I now teach professionally to uh, you know, scientists and engineers across the world through my, um, my coaching company, Present Your Science. That's an amazing opportunity. Sounds serendipitous that that, that would have come. <laughs> it certainly <to> was. <laughs> and then it's turned turned your career in a whole new direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it certainly, you know, I would say that that getting, you know, responding to that initial, uh, you know, that initial inquiry of, hey, we've got this this need for a specialized class. I mean, I certainly when I responded to that had no idea that I was, you know, responding to the thing that I was really meant to do because the first time, I mean, I'll never forget the first class that I taught. Uh, a whole group of engineering students. I was both scared, but also as soon as I started to talk with them and realized what you know what they were trying to get across and how important the work was, I was completely uh, just just totally hooked uh, from from that moment. I said, "This is exactly what I'm supposed to be doing uh, as a communications professional." And uh, you know, and then you know, serendipitously, I think, and maybe some of the you know a way that maybe your listeners have come across. Some of my work, the way that most people have, is that I also had the, that opportunity to give um, a presentation from the TED stage, which really helped to get that message out to a to a broader audience beyond my my Penn State group. Yeah, no, absolutely. So yeah, your your TED talk was at TED Global 2012. I, I so I have a couple questions for you about that. Um, one of them, well, the first one is how, how did that come to be? How did you end up on on TED's radar and and get that speaking slot? Sure. This is, uh, you know, I, I think an, an interesting story in that I, I, I suspect it's uh, a bit unexpected from how people normally think of uh, how people arrive at the, the TED stage. So um, typically my understanding is that for you know, to present at one of the main um, TED events, of which there's two, there's the regular TED and the TED Global, to get to one of those stages, typically it's people that have already, you know, have a book or have done something you know really significant in terms of spearheaded a major project I mean these are people that are really out there already and Ted, the, Ted sees them in the news or wherever and says yeah mm -hmm. this is somebody we should have come and talk my journey was a little bit different uh, in that uh, as some of the listeners may or may not be familiar with so there's something called TEDx events um, you've probably heard of them David mm -hmm. I'm sure um, which are the independent TED events and the reason that that's significant to my story is that Penn State wanted to have an independent TED event that they called TEDxPSU. Mm -hmm. And the way the independent TED events work is that if you want to have one that is of um, a size larger than 100 people in the audience, you have to have a special license from TED to use some of their branding and, and those sorts of things. And so in order to do that, and Penn State did want to have it's a large university, they wanted to have a large event. And so um, you have to have a license holder. And at the time I was advising um, that student organization that was trying to get this, you know, sort of off the ground because I was a TED aficionado, I think from a very, very early start, I had been using those in my teaching for years. And so when some students were, you know, getting excited about that, that was something that I became involved in supporting the, the effort. And mm -hmm. so it turned, it turned out that in order to hold the license, one of the requirements to be a licensee from TED is that you have to have attended one of those two main TED events so that you become a bit more familiar with the style of the event. And so I, so Penn State said, hey, we'd like you to go so that you can you know, qualify to be a license holder. I said, 
sure. It was the easiest yes I ever did in my life, which was sure, I'll go attend the TED event. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, and so the next one, the next one coming up was TED Global in Edinburgh, Scotland in 2012. And so I was all signed up just to go be an attendee. I was extremely excited about it. It was a total dream come true. And then I get an email. And this is something I did not know was, was a thing. But for that conference that year, and I don't know if they've done it for other conferences, I assume they have. Um, but there's an email that went out to all attendees, essentially saying that they have a couple of, um, you know, I call them wild card spots, mm -hmm. which are basically they have a, a, you know, a spot or two open that attendees can pitch um, an idea for one of those, one of those speaking slots. And uh, I thought, well, hey, I mean, this is already a once in a lifetime opportunity. I'm going to be there. I was at that point very deep into my, my work at Penn State with teaching scientists and, uh, and engineering students. And I thought, you know, I'm passionate about this message. I feel like it's one that maybe needs to get out there. And so I just sent in, a, you know, responded to the little application. And uh, lo and behold, I went through several rounds of interviews and, you know, selection process. And I was selected for one of those <laughs> wild card spots. So that's how okay. I ended up on that stage at a fairly, I would say at a fairly, at that time, a fairly early stage in my, uh, in my career. So that's how I ended up there, which is a pretty neat opportunity. Yeah, I'm, I'm also a big fan of TED. We actually did some work for um, the, the annual TED event in 2011 with our, our Dial Smith group where we worked with them to dial test some of the TED Talks. So that was also an easy yes where they asked if, if we would be a part of it and help them out and we couldn't say yes fast enough. So, um, <laughs> and, then, and then when TEDx started to grow, I live in Portland, Oregon, and uh, TEDx Portland um, is one of the largest U.S.-based um, TEDx events, and I've, I think I've been to the last five years um, of those. So I'm, I'm also a huge, a uh, huge fan. Um, your talk was amazing. We'll link to it. No one will have trouble finding it, of course. I think to, to kick everything off, you kind of had me at, at the title. So um, where did talk nerdy uh, to me come from? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, that's actually how, when I was thinking, because this email came in kind of saying, you know, pitch your talk idea. And so I was, uh, had been, you know, kind of, you know, how things sort of marinate in your mind. And, you know, I had been kind of thinking about it. And I was like, I wonder if I should try to pitch some sort of a talk. And so I had been thinking about it. And I was actually driving to work that day. I remember exactly like the point of my, my road to work uh, where it, it jumped into my, into my mind, this idea. So the title was the first thing that mm -hmm. I developed for the talk actually uh, and it and it for me it just it came out of nowhere in the idea because I was really trying to figure out how to strike the right tone which mm -hmm. I found to be difficult for that message because I wanted to be both I wanted to have something that was fun and lighthearted. I thought that that was important because I also know that I thought the message might be a bit challenging. Uh, and so I wanted to do it in an uplifting and positive way. And so I was really thinking about, you know, what the title might be that would, that would convey both um, the, the challenge and the opportunity, but also the, the, the bit of the fun part, which for me, and just it's sort of my personality, how I like to approach the things that I do, I wanted to make sure that the talk was, was me uh, and, and what I was trying to get across. So the title was actually the first thing um, that that came up that came across to me, and I you know asked a couple of people about it, and and ultimately I said you know does it seem does it seem fun? Does it seem like it works? And and uh, it got you know pretty good responses uh, right away. I thought it was a bit of a risk to tell you the truth. 
just because it, you know, is a, 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 a bit edgy, um, depending mm-hmm. on what circles you're in. But I, I felt like it was, I felt good about the choice um, and, and, you know, slapping that right at the top of my application because I thought that it stood out and I thought that it conveyed a bit of the, the fun approach that I wanted to take with what I also thought was a valuable and useful message. Clearly it's spot on. You, you know that now these years later, the kind of feedback I'm sure you've gotten, but uh, it it was a stroke of brilliance for sure. It was, it was great. (laughs) Thank you. Um, yeah. Well, like I said, I was, you know, I wasn't sure at the beginning, but it worked out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So uh, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of other TED fans will, will be curious. What's it like once you're in that ecosystem, you've been selected, you know, you're going to talk. What, what's it like when you're kind of in, in the eye of the storm there? How would you describe the experience? Terrifying and awesome. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, for me, I found it, so I say terrifying because uh, remember that at that time, my main job was as a public speaking faculty member at Penn State University. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that there's, you know, nothing closer to career suicide than being a public speaking teacher that flubs their TED talk, right? I mean, you know, I was riding, you know, I was riding the plane over and I was like, boy, if this doesn't go well, I was thinking about what are my other career options and, you know, <laughs> things that I could, uh, you know, that, that I could do. So, so that's the terrifying part is that mm-hmm. I felt like the stakes seemed especially high for just because I'm, you know, I'm a public speaking teacher, I should be able to pull that off. And so that was, that was one thing. But I would also say that it was awesome because I was personally, uh, you know, through my experience, just beyond impressed with the TED organization. I felt like from start to finish, from the second that I was selected until I stepped foot on that stage, I felt really supported. I felt really encouraged. Uh, I went through, you know, quite a lot of uh, revisions with the TED team of my talk. And what I was most impressed by, and I had no idea what to expect. I had no experience in, in that realm. I was most impressed by how dedicated the folks that I worked with were to making sure that I gave my talk, not a talk that they wanted me to give, but what was the talk that I wanted to give, what was important to me. And then they just helped me to give me feedback on how to make my message the best that, that it could be, which I think is an important distinction because I actually expected there to be a little bit more, you know, hey, we really think this would be like the right you know, angle to take on this, or we think this would be, you know, and we think about the theme of the conference, maybe you want to say a little bit more about this. And I didn't really get that from, from them, which, which to me was a surprise. Um, and pleasantly so. I really, you know, when I was having my questions and my, um, you know, my revision from, from them, it was very much just how can we help support you to make sure that you give the message that you, that you want um, from, from that stage. And so I, I found that to be, to be really, really great. So, you know, for me, I felt like I gave the talk that um, reflected myself and I felt like I had the full support of the TED team to develop that um, in a way that was useful for uh, what, you know, what I wanted to get across. Yeah, well, that, that's great to hear. That's certainly um, the, the way the organization seems. And it's great to hear that that's what it's like behind the scenes. I also think that's what lends to the popularity of TED and TED Talks being so engaging because they're authentic to you or to the other speakers and not what you're being shoehorned into trying to be in order to fit the theme of an event or something like that. 
Yeah, exactly. And and I have to say that was a surprise. I was sort of prepared to, you know, have my talk be molded, you know, if I thinking that they might have, you know, the curators might have a certain direction or that kind of thing. And um, that was that was really a surprise. And, you know, the other thing that I think stands out, you talked about being in the eye of the of the storm, if you will, I was I will say that it was from a speaker perspective, very much something that they emphasized the practice, the preparation, the dress rehearsal. I mean, there were very few surprises. I would say the 24 hours leading up to my moment on the stage were um, very carefully managed. And I mean that in a good way, uh, mm -hmm. in terms of there was a, you know, a very, uh, an important dress rehearsal that for me actually, by the way, went terribly. And so <laughs> I found the dress rehearsal to be incredibly difficult. And so I was still kind of struggling at that point. I had a really short time slot and I was still struggling to get my content into the time slot. And, uh, you know, but I felt like there was very much a sense that they didn't leave a lot to chance. I mean, it really was that there was, they were making sure that the speakers were prepared and, and were ready. And that was interesting you know, to me because as a speaking coach or a speaking uh, teacher, I was trying to absorb that experience on two levels, and I had to you know, remind myself each day I wanted to absorb, absorb it. I had to absorb it as a speaker because I had to mm -hmm. deliver you know, on a big stage, but I, I was trying to also parallel process and run something secondarily in my mind, which was how are they doing this? From a you know from a speaking and coaching perspective, right. uh, and and really what I you know what I learned from that, uh, which didn't come particularly as a surprise, is that practice and preparation matter. You know, it's the number one it's the number one question that I get asked all the time. I mean, you know, how can I present better? How can I give a talk like that? Or if somebody will see, you know, me or someone else present that seems comfortable, that's always what they want to want to ask. How can I do that? And I always feel like I don't have great news because people really want a magic bullet type of theory. You know, they want like, here, you know, do this one quick trick and, you know, th then you'll be comfortable and, and confident when you present. And for me, uh, and, you know, it may just be the, you know, my style, but I had to work at it, you know, to, to feel comfortable on that particular stage. I practiced and prepared a lot and, and mm -hmm. Ted conveyed that to me as an important strategy. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely. Um, last year, I gave uh, my biggest talk to the largest audience that I've spoken to, and it was much different than anything I've ever done before. And uh, I committed myself to practice. And it felt unnatural because I've been in sales and marketing my whole career, and I talk to people all the time, and I'm pretty comfortable off the cuff, seat of my pants. But I just knew that up on that stage with the spotlight on and a room full of people who in my mind are probably judging me from the minute I walk out, uh, <laughs> I need to do everything I can to train my mind to not blank out on me. And, um, and uh, the practice and preparation just made me so much more confident. And it wasn't so much about memorization. I think you can over memorize and put yourself too much into a box you, you you would know far more than i would in your profession but for me it was really just becoming really comfortable with the material and the sequencing and the key words and triggers that i knew i had to say in order for the rest of the train of thought to come together you know i couldn't have said it better myself that's exactly right i i think that that's always a hard nuance to strike when you're trying to, you know, because I, I can't emphasize enough how important preparation is for a big talk, but that's different from memorization, which is for me, the, the, the thing to be avoided. 
Um, mm -hmm. As soon as you start to memorize, it's actually, it, it's extremely dangerous because when you memorize something, that, that actually puts you at quite a high risk of the blank out occurring. And then you have nothing to go on. I think it's most important that you really just truly know your material. And it's okay if you lose a bit, you may lose, um, you know, a piece here or there, you may have a little bit of a stumble, uh, but actually that's, I believe, more, more natural and more positive than something that feels like it's being rotely memorized and, and recited. So I think there's a, the, the trade-off in, in the natural flaws, if you will, are worth it because the audience feels as though you're actually talking to them instead of reading a script from your mind. Yeah, absolutely. It humanizes you. And I, I've taken cues um, from comedians who've either had a joke bomb or have lost their way and the way that they use their natural sense of humor to be able to be self-deprecating, diffuse that situation, get right back on track. And I think it endears the audience to them even more than if, if they hadn't had the mistake. Yeah, I, I, I completely agree. So let's turn this back to your area of specialty. Taking your years of public speaking experience and coaching and, and the lion's den of a, of a TED Global talk um, and focus that on making uh, scientific presentations or data-based presentations more, uh, as you say, meaningful, engaging, and inspire people to take action. So what were some of the things that you were surprised to learn as, as you got into that space? And what are some universal truths that have really unfolded for you over the years as you've been coaching people? Universal truths. That's a, I, I like that. That's, a, that's an interesting way to think about it. I think that what surprised me the most um, and surprised me both in terms of how much need there is and also now that I'm still doing it this many years later, how I still am surprised that I'm still having to target this so specifically. And that's the use of visual aids um, and, and PowerPoint and slide design in scientific talks. I was surprised when I got into it how poorly it was done. Meaning, and when I say poor slide design, I would define that as text heavy bullet laden slides. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's, that's how I would think of that. And I was quite surprised to see just, just how entirely prevalent that was in the technical field, how entirely ineffective it was and yet so prevalent. And I've been really, this is a drum that I've been banging for my, you know, since I started in this work, I believe that this is the place that we simply must have, we, we must have a significant shift and significant change in order to improve the quality of scientific talks. And I continue to be surprised that this is still a conversation that I have to have with lots of people in lots of big corporations, small companies, universities, top tier institutions. I mean, this is to me a really uh, fundamentally broken part of our system that, that I thought by now actually, especially given how rapidly our technology is changing. I mean, look at how visual our world has become when you think about what you see on the screens that you hold in your hands or that sit on your desk. Mm -hmm. And then I am amazed at the disconnect that when it's time to stand up and talk, that we're really using this medium to simply do exactly the same thing as what we're doing when we speak, which is to deliver content in a, in a word-based scenario. Yeah. Uh, so that to me is, has, been, has been a continual surprise. The flip side of that, and, and this is what I would say if, if there are any listeners that are in 
a field where you're trying to convey, um, you know, complex domain specific knowledge. I mean, I happen to work in science and engineering, but I think that many of these ideas translate well to complex specific domain expertise. And if, if that happens to be someone who's listening, I think that the good news here is that this is low hanging fruit. If you are courageous enough to challenge the status quo when it comes to what you put on your slides, meaning that you're willing to show up with a slide that maybe doesn't look like the one that everybody else in your company has designed, that everybody else at the conference has designed. If you're willing to be so bold as to think instead about what I call visual evidence on your, on your slides, and that's a, that's a term that comes from my fabulous mentor at Penn State, uh, Professor Michael Alley. The, he's the lead researcher in the area of slide design, and he uses the term visual evidence, which I use in, in my work now as well. But that, to me, if you're willing to, to really leverage the visual qualities of your slides and to get away from the bullet points, you have a huge opportunity to, to stand out in a positive way because this still is something that has not changed all that much in those mm-hmm. fields. I'll put you on the spot. Let me know if you're able to if you're able to come up with something for us. But do you have an example that you could walk us through of a case where you took something that was that text heavy bulleted visual aid and helped someone rework it into something that's more visual evidence based, something more tangible that we can wrap our heads around? Sure. So the way that I like to think about slides is think about having your slide do something for you that your words cannot. I think that that's a really important way to to think about it. So if you have a message you're trying to convey, then you're thinking about, okay, what would be the the visual way to do that? And so I believe that um, what a lot of people do when they start to hear me talk about this is that they look at an existing deck that they have. And that's almost actually a little bit in the the nature of your question, which is, okay, I've got my traditionally designed deck. Now I'd like to do it a little bit differently or a bit better. And so I'm going to do a one-to-one transformation. And actually, I believe that that's the hardest way to do this, believe it or not, because the simple act of designing via a bulleted list in PowerPoint actually pollutes the way that you think about the material. Because the second universal truth um, that I've learned in, in helping scientists and engineers to communicate about their work is that the devil is in the details. And that goes both ways, meaning that you have to be precise, but you also have to not overwhelm. And I believe that so many scientific presentations are compromised because there is too many deta- there are too many details. I mean, they're simply so overwhelming. There are so many pieces of information that the audience can't really figure out what's critical, what's important, what's actionable. And as mm-hmm. a result, they, they do nothing. And I believe that a big culprit of that, why we've ended up in that place, begins the moment that somebody sits down, opens up PowerPoint, and begins with that master template that says, hey, type a phrase title at the top and then support it with a bulleted list. And yep. so as soon as that happens, I believe that the thinking is, has from that point forward been, in, in, in my mind, it may be too strong of a word, but it's what I believe. I believe that the thinking has been polluted. I think it's incredibly difficult to back out of that. So to get to your, you know, to more specifically what someone might do, and this is what I have coached many people uh, uh, to, to do, which is to step away from the, from the slide design software for a moment and ask yourself, what 
are the messages. And now I talk about takeaway messages. You could call it storylines. Um, some of the research calls it assertions, whatever it might be. But I like the idea of takeaway messages. At the end of my talk, what are the takeaway messages that I want my audience to have? And I think a good rule of thumb is no more than one per minute of talk time as a, as a, as a kind of an upper threshold, which I think can go lower um, and less the, the more complex your content happens to be. But sit down. If you've got a 15-minute conference talk, I might coach someone, what are 10 takeaways about the research? Once you have those takeaway messages or those storylines, that's now where I would ask you to say, okay, so if you're trying to convey this result, now you are in a good position to say, what's the visual evidence for that takeaway message? And usually, once you start thinking that way, there's two things that happen. First of all, you are now at a much more filtered and focused level of thinking about the material because thinking in terms of takeaways is a much deeper level of thought than thinking simply as a topic or a phrase. So just that shift um, changes the, the, the thinking uh, of, the, of the presenter because you have to, by nature, to do a full sentence takeaway, you have to be specific about what it is that you're, that you're saying. When you add that subject and verb, it, it adds some specificity that a phrase simply does not. Mm -hmm. And then once you have, now you're more filtered and focused on your message, and now you can start to fill in what would be visual evidence for those takeaways. And they actually lend themselves usually quite well. I mean, people do charts, graphs, tables, diagrams, photos, vis you know, videos, icons. I mean, there's tons of things that, that work well. And ultimately, if you get, and this is the number one, you know, one of the huge things I get asked is they'll say, okay, that's all well and good because I think that you'll find that as soon as you start thinking that way, most of the visual evidence lends itself. Like it kind of comes up, you know, okay, I need to, mm -hmm. you know, I need to support a result. Here's a graph. I need to show up, you know, support this description. Here's a photo. That all comes together. And then you're always going to get to one spot where you're going to be like, oh no, there's no visual. <laughs> and this is where people, and this is always the question I get. And it's, it's, sometimes it's asked in panic. Sometimes it's asked as a gotcha question, actually. Well, I have this one thing where there's just no visual. And what I would tell you, I tell the listeners, is that that's actually not a crisis. Do you know what that's mm. telling us? That's telling us that at this stage in the talk, a slide is not necessary. And so I would put forth the radical idea that it might be entirely possible that at some point in a presentation, the strongest thing that you could do is blank the screen and simply talk. You know, there is nothing that says that we cannot communicate powerfully at yep. stages of a presentation without a slide. And that, I have to say, is an idea that is the world of science and engineering kind of a crazy one. I mean, people will look mm -hmm. at me like I've grown a second head when I suggest that maybe for 30 seconds or a minute in their talk, the strongest thing they could do is to simply describe what they were seeing in the lab. So yeah. I think that that's the process. So that, when I, you know, I'm thinking about how I would walk somebody through it, and that's exactly what I, what I do. So I hope that's, that's a process that maybe your, your listeners can avail themselves of as well. Absolutely. And I think another thing that, that listeners to this podcast face a lot, um, because a lot of them work in market research, customer insights, and uh, so much data gets presented in charts and in graphs. And it's trying to figure out whether you're delivering it verbally or whether you're putting it into a report and you don't want to have a 30-page graph-laden report that just ends up on a shelf. 
what are what are some tricks and techniques to be able to turn data-based findings like that into visuals that are more compelling, more memorable, easier to digest or share? Sure. I would say that, and it's, you know, I might add a piece that it's not just turning it into the visual, but to me, the two go hand in hand. The, the right, the right, the visual is secondary to the right message. Um, right. It, to yes. me, it's the, it's the supporting, you know, the supporting cast. So I think that the shift that, that at least I'm, you know, currently advocating for is that I believe what we have in whether it's reports as you described of, you know, what your, what your audience is often respond, you know, responsible for, or whether it's, um, you know, standing up and, and delivering a, you know, findings or a project update. I think that what we often have is we have communicators or presenters that are givers or listers of information. Mm. So we have come up with a lot of stuff, call that the research, all right, whatever it might be, doesn't really matter what field you're in, but we have got stuff, we've got facts, we've got findings, we've got information, and then what typically happens is that to give a presentation or to write a report, we become a lister or a giver of that information, and here's the shift that I think is what our audiences are really desiring, and this is why I think the gap is happening, is that the communicator, the, the presenter, the writer, whatever it might be, the communicator is saying, hey, here's all the stuff, right? Here's all the information. I am giving it to you. And what mm -hmm. the audience wants is they don't want a giver or a lister of information. What they desperately want from speakers, I believe, is for speakers to be interpreters of that information. And to become an interpreter, I think that the all important, most critical question, and you should ask yourself this a million times as you're developing a talk and answer it while you're giving the talk. And that's the question, so what? I think that when you look at findings, when you look at the reports you're trying to convey, when you look at the visuals that you're trying to that you're trying to design, ask yourself, so what? And ask yourself, so what? More than once about a particular item. So okay, mm -hmm. we have this finding. Well, so what? Right? And and answer that for your for yourself. And I actually like to do an exercise that I'll do uh, sometimes with with people in my workshops or when I'm coaching is that. I almost take it to a point of absurdity in terms of, I mean, just keep asking that question. So what, so what, so what, until we get to the most top level um, of what we're, what we're doing. And, you know, example, I was actually, I was teaching um, just yesterday, giving a, a workshop at uh, NC State University. And there was a, a researcher in that audience that essentially designed, to my understanding in the first pass, as he was describing it to me, he designed algorithms for flight simulators. Mm. All right. And so he described, he, he just, he had described to me, you know, and there's a, a very fancy name that I don't recall, um, you know, mm -hmm. for these algorithms, for these flight simulators. And so I said, well, so what? And he said, well, you know, and the next, the answer to that was, well, you know, pilots are, are actually in many cases, no, no longer or not as often trained or recertified on actual planes. They are instead recertified mm -hmm. on these flight simulators mm -hmm. but we need to make sure that the algorithms right are responding appropriately and I was said well okay so what right so they're retrained on these well then then it, it turns it turns out that the shift that has to happen the reason that matters is that we need the simulators to respond very quickly and in a real you know in the same real life scenario that an actual plane might and that's why this that's why these algorithms 
our, you know, this innovation is, is so important. And then of course, then I said, you know, now I'm, now I'm starting to get it. Okay. I get why we want to, you know, train pilots well and have the simulations be, you know, be appropriate so that they're learning, you know, how something would actually respond. And then the final, so what, and this is probably a level that you maybe wouldn't need to go all the way to, but then I said again, so what? Well, it's so that our pilots are, are keeping us safe in the, in the skies in real world situations. But that's an example of, we came up actually four levels of trying to go from the jargon laden finding or, you know, piece of information. And now we come all the way up and now we have a couple of choices in terms of how we can interpret that information for our audience. And so I think that that exercise of the so what, and, and, and then you can then decide based on who your audience is, which level is appropriate. I mean, am I only, do I only need to come up one level of so what? You know, I just need to ask it once and that gets me to an appropriate interpretation. Or if I've got an audience that's really, you know, very much outside the field, then you may need to ask yourself that question two or three times to get to the right interpretation of the data. And it's interesting that that exercise is not particularly difficult to do, but it mm -hmm. is incredibly illuminating that that's what's missing because what happens is we have this gap as experts in that it all seems so obvious. Um, you know, the, the, the Heath brothers, Chip and Dan Heath, um, coined one of my favorite terms in their book called Made to Stick. They coined a term called the curse of knowledge, which is that we forget what it's like to not know. Hmm. And I think that that is, I mean, if there is one thing that, that I'm working with all the time, it's the curse of knowledge, which is that we get so involved as the experts in developing our, you know, our material, our findings, doing the research, that we put the data out there and it seems obvious what the so what is. And so being aware of the curse of knowledge, I think helps to combat this idea of, or, or this um, temptation to be simply a lister or a giver of information. So if you're aware of that, and I think the way to combat it is that ask yourself, am I, I'm not just listing or giving this finding, but am I interpreting it for my audience? And I think a way to get there is through that so what um, questioning phase. That's a great technique. And it also endears you more to your audience and lets you craft a story and a narrative out of these incredibly complex things and findings that scientists are trying to communicate. If you take flight simulation algorithms and you reduce it down to ultimately we're doing this because it will save lives. It will help pilots keep passengers safe in the air and help them handle difficult situations. And then if you work back from that ultimate extreme that we can all connect with, I think it's a much easier path then to people being interested and open and, and willing to process what starts to become a lot more complex and, and difficult to grasp. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, th this has been fascinating and I can't thank you enough, not only for telling us your story, but for giving us some real tangible tactical takeaways. I know this is what you do for a living. Um, it's a real gift to our listeners to be able to, to take your expertise and, and apply it to their work immediately. So I, I really want to thank you for that. Um, and we will absolutely direct listeners to your website and certainly to your TED Talk. I cannot recommend that more highly um, as a way to spend a little bit of time and, and really learn what your work is all about. 
Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity to come on and to, to share a few of these ideas with your audience. And I, and I certainly hope that, uh, that it's helpful for them in whatever presentation situation they find themselves in, that they're able to really seize that moment and convey what's meaningful and important so that their work has the impact on the audience that they want it to have. So thank you for having me, David.